You watch the steam rise steadily off of the hot bath water that day. And you sink further into the soothing stew of the communal tub. You have several long weeks ahead of you. You know, your cohort is heading to Filippo on the northern corner of Macedonia to be stationed there for some time. And so you close your eyes and try not to think about it. You let the sun wash over your face. But your mind can't keep still, though. Just the other week, a strange man named Shimon met you near the Domas, and, and, and he kept telling you of, of his god. <laughs> one true god this, one true god that, but all you wanted was some of the bread that he had on hand, but he wouldn't let you go. The strangest thing about it, though, was that you couldn't stop thinking about it. One god. Ha! What if that were true? Well, then everything you believed would be flipped upside down. The Roman army would have no purpose if not to serve the god Mars. And one god, I mean, that would, that would ruin everything that you held dear. <laughs> but it did really get you thinking about the Hebrews. Ugh, so many politics. When you were drafted into your cohort, you thought you would learn how to be the best Roman citizen you could be. And, and, and indeed, you had. But the price you paid was a knapsack of political drama that washes over your every move. I mean, for example, you've noticed how the civil tension within the city has grown steadily over the past few years after Claudius expelled all of the Hebrews from the city, and then they came back. And since then, the Romans can't stand the Hebrews, the Hebrews can't get along with you Romans, ugh. But, every year, since then, since they came back, there is a few months of quiet. The Hebrews, they all leave, they travel thousands upon thousands of miles to where they claim that their god dwells on earth. <laughs> Some crazy celebration. You think to yourself that, that if something doesn't change soon, though, Rome might start lighting people on fire. I mean, it's a tinderbox ready to blow. Kaisers, you need to come with me right this moment. Your eyelids prick open, and the glare of the sun rushes in. And when you crane your neck up, Shimon stands over you. Out of breath. You need to come with me right this moment. Something must be wrong at the market. You throw on your clothes, you grab your dagger, you rush off with Shimon. But he doesn't take you to the market. He, he takes you to his insula, closes the door, shuts the blinds, and comes in close. Augustus has been overthrown. Without hesitation or thought, your dagger flies from under your tunic. Your eyes widen, you rush to the door. Wait! There is no need to rush off. There is good news. What are you saying, Shimon? A new king has arrived, but his kingdom is not of this world. He has come back for us. Are you going on about your god again? He has come to deliver his people. What does that have to do with me? Everything, Caius. There was about 120 of us sitting in an upper room in Jerusalem when a gust of wind and the spirit of our god descended upon us, filling the hearts of men standing there with such joy. They began to speak in languages not their own. The prophets of old told us this would happen. When the king comes back, he will bring all nations, languages, and people under his reign. Well, if he is a new king, what, what are his policies? What does he do? How does he rule if he is not, as you say, of this earth? Caius, listen to me. Even though we are fruit from two very different trees, we all have one thing that unites us. We are sick. So you've told me. Yes, we are infected with sin. But if what I'm saying is true, then believe me when I tell you, there is a cure. I leave for Philippi tomorrow. I can't have my head filled with nonsense. Philippi, perfect. Take this good news with you straight to Lydia. She will help you. 
Then when you come back, find us. There will be more who believe in this new king. Gentile, Jew, all living together. Trust me. Bible Knots, thanks for exploring with us today. Today, we dive straight into Paul's letter to the Roman church. You know, to understand the letter to the Romans, we need to take a step back a little bit. The letter was written probably around 56 AD, maybe earlier, maybe later, but, but the important thing to understand is that in about 19 AD, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. This was because of a few things, but, but mainly, the population in Rome had gotten way out of hand. There was likely close to a million people living in the city in the first century, and the city was only built for a few hundred thousand. I mean, they shoved these people into these tiny dorm-style apartments called insula, where the poor laborers and the only kind of poor people lived. Historians don't know the exact events that led up to the Jewish expulsion from Rome, but we can assume that overcrowding and anti-Semitism played a huge role in the process. So we have this guy named Dio, and he wrote about Claudius sometime in 12 AD. He said this, quote, As for the Jews, who had again increased so greatly that by reason of their multitude it would have been hard without raising a tumult to bar them from the city, he didn't drive them out, but he ordered them, while continuing their traditional mode of life, not to hold meetings any longer. Which is huge because that means in 12 AD, the Jewish population in Rome became completely decentralized. But then several years later, Claudius expelled the Hebrews from the city, and he said, quote, since they constantly made disturbances. Needless to say, Roman authorities, they didn't like Jewish men and women. They were kicked out. Oh, by the way, this included a husband and a wife named Priscilla and Aquila who packed up their stuff and moved to the Greek city of Corinth to continue their trade. But... Five years after Claudius kicks out all of the Jews from Rome, he brings the Hebrews back. Historians presume that he brought them back because it was then when he laid a heavy tax burden on the Hebrews to ease all the economic difficulties of the city of Rome. This all meant that the tension between the Romans and the Jews was highly combustible by the time Paul comes around. It also meant that the Jewish worshippers in the city of Rome had no central structural synagogue system in place, and so, in 34 AD, devout Jewish worshippers return from their trip to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, and the city, well, it's met with a new king, because these worshippers, they come back from this Passover celebration claiming that their Messiah, their king, has returned in this guy named Jesus from Nazareth. And, and, and they have evidence of this because they were all praying and singing together in an upper room and the Spirit of God enters into each one of them and allows them to speak in languages that they didn't know, fulfilling tons of prophecies from their holy scriptures. So over the next several decades, these Jewish worshipers begin to convert Roman Gentiles to their religion, to Judaism, claiming that their scriptures will allow it once the Messiah has come to reign on earth. But the only thing they don't know about is if these Roman men need to be, like, circumcised. If they need to follow ceremonial laws that are also outlined in their scriptures. 
I mean, after all, the last time their people didn't follow the ceremonial law, they were exiled into Babylon, and so they want to get this right now that the Messiah is reigning. Meanwhile, during all of this, a philosopher and a scholar named Saul, who also went by Paul, had been forming a theology around the person of Jesus Christ. And he's been telling this to all these other Gentiles all across the Mediterranean. And so Paul likely hears of the problems facing the Roman church through this complicated web of mutual friends, but all of it included Priscilla and Aquila who resided in Corinth with Paul when he drafts the letter that we're looking at today. You see, Paul had never visited Rome. He had never met the churches there. He had no relation to them. He had never met the people. The letter he writes to the Romans serves as this kind of formal introduction to who he is, a formal overview of his entire theological body. There's no one specific problem that he is addressing, but likely just trying to reunify this divided body of people that are arguing over ceremonial laws. The letter follows the same structure, by the way, as the entire biblical narrative. So it starts by detailing how humanity is condemned under the fallen created order. Gentiles are condemned because they have failed to worship the one true God of Israel, Paul says. The irreligious, or what would have been called moralists, are condemned because they can't live up to their own moral standards that they've set for themselves, let alone God's moral standards. And finally, Paul says that the Israelites are condemned because they have rejected God outright throughout all of history. Paul has established that humanity, all of humanity, has this serious problem. But God has introduced a serious solution. That is, Paul believes, the person of Jesus, the ones who the Jews call the Christ. Apparently, all of humanity can be pulled from the bog of sin that they find themselves in and saved from the condemnation brought upon them at creation. This salvation, Paul says, is found in trusting that Jesus' death does, well, basically two things. The first thing Paul says we need to trust that Jesus' death does is justify us before a holy God. You see, Paul outlines the idea that if we are all truly condemned, then we need to be vindicated. And Jesus' death maps God's very own righteousness onto us, therefore making our sinfulness obsolete and, in association, making us righteous. The second thing Paul says we need to trust that Jesus' death does is sanctify us, which Paul makes clear is God mapping his holiness onto us. So Paul says that through Jesus' death and resurrection, God's righteousness and God's holiness are then imprinted onto people who believe it. That should then, Paul goes on to say, inspire them, humble them, cause them to worship and glorify God as living sacrifices. Which is where Paul moves on to talking about how this all works out very practically. Because God has made a way for sinful people to be justified, to be sanctified, and to be glorified. He makes his main and ultimate point of writing the letter here. Christians should then live as one unified people that edifies and exhorts all their different cultural differences, meaning that the Jewish men and women should submit to Roman authority, even unto death, as long as it means that God is glorified. Romans, including, if not especially the authority figures, should submit to Jesus so that God is glorified. Jews shouldn't make Gentiles Jewish, Gentiles shouldn't force the Hebrews to be more Roman, rather, 
They should appreciate, honor, respect the cultural differences and live as a unified people under this new king, Jesus. Paul then closes out his letter with a summary conclusion and a farewell to the five or six house churches that are scattered all around the city. And from there, the letter to the Romans fades out. The Book of Acts, I think, is the perfect book to come right before the Book of Romans. Call it divine sovereignty, call it really smart people that put the Bible together, but the Book of Acts is brilliant because, and we've talked about this a lot in our video series over on YouTube as we've gone through the Book of Acts, but there's a story within the Book of Acts that becomes the catalyst for the rest of the epistles, and that is when a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira lie about a piece of land they sold and then they die. It's a really interesting story, but Luke sets it up for us as though it's a reflection of Adam and Eve. And what this does for us as readers is it makes us realize that the church is going to have problems. It's going to have a lot of problems, and it all started with this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Before Ananias and Sapphira, everything worked together in perfect harmony. But after that, things begin to break down, dissolve into chaos, and there's a lot of disruptions and disunity throughout the church body. We see that play out throughout the rest of the book of Acts and into the epistles, and that's why I think Romans is such a fantastic book to follow right after Acts, because we've just seen how this entire narrative plays out the disunity of the body and how it becomes unified under Christ. The letter to the Romans does the exact same thing. You see, I live in Milwaukee, and one of the most beautiful, difficult, heartbreaking things to see is when I'm driving over the bridge in the morning into the city. I look out and I see across hundreds of miles all of these different steeples poking up all through the trees. Apparently, Milwaukee is also called the City of Steeples, the City of a Thousand Steeples. You can see clearly why when you drive through it. It's beautiful in one sense because it means that at some point this city was actually passionate for the gospel to spread around it. But it's heartbreaking in another sense because you know that probably at some point this was only a handful of churches and those churches all began to argue and they began to split off and they began to plan other churches. Nowadays, hardly any of those churches are attended at all. Uh, Paul seems to see this problem as integral to the biblical narrative, that humanity is a divided species. And the glory, the beauty, the power of Jesus is one that unites this divided people. And while we haven't explicitly talked about how unity is played out in the biblical epic, it certainly is. In fact, it's such a major theme that Paul does it here in Romans. And I think we can see it through two key themes that we've talked about. The first key messianic theme that we've talked a lot about in our study up until now is how the Messiah would come to love people back to life. And what I ultimately meant by that was, was talked about in the Song of Solomon episode, where the pure love of the, the other character re-energized, reinvigorated, and renewed the other person. We talked about how the opposite of death was love. 
This means that the love that the Messiah was going to show was going to be a love that was uncompromising, unconditional. And as the church, we are called to show that same kind of redemptive, passionate love out into the world. And show the same kind of love back into the church as well. An outflow of this kind of passionate love is unity. This is precisely why I find the Catholic doctrine of unity so beautiful. From what I've come to understand, it's a doctrine that is uncompromising when it comes to the unity of the church. And it makes a ton of sense because, to Paul's point in this letter, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, then we get to put away all of our pride. We are allowed to be a unified people when we understand what Jesus has done, when we understand that uncompromising love. We get to put away our shame and our bitterness. When someone tells us a hard truth, we are allowed to repent of the sins that we've committed. And, and when we get offended by someone else's sinfulness, we are allowed to forgive them. That's what the gospel does for us. The second key messianic theme that exemplifies this, this unification process that Paul is outlining here is that we are called to be representatives of the perfected Israel. Uh, by the way, I'm not advocating that we are a replacement for Israel. I, I mean, just go read Romans 11 right now if you think that's what I'm saying. But no, rather, if the church collectively, within our cultural differences, acts as the archetypal Israel, then we should be a unified people. Because Israel was supposed to be unified when the Holy Spirit came. I mean, that just is talked about in Acts. So, you know, from what I can gather, the book of Romans convicts us with that Paul is saying that we don't love each other well. Not like how the Messiah loved us. We don't represent him well. Not how the Messiah represented God anyway. And let me be clear, I do not mean that we become Jesus or that we become little gods. But rather, we, the church with a big C, carries on the messianic themes set forth in the Bible. And of course, I don't mean us, you and I individually, but that the church becomes collectively the vehicle in which the Holy Spirit crushes the head of the snake until the return of the only begotten Son of God, until the end of time. Also, I should note that belief in Christ requires two things. One, a belief that we are sinful or broken beyond repair. And two, a belief that Jesus is God and therefore sinless and gracious beyond comprehension. I do not mean this kind of ethereal belief into this kind of esoteric metaphysical thing. I mean, it's very concrete. You and I are terrible. God is holy and good. In order to reconcile, in order to repair that relationship, God dies for us so that we can be entered in. There, there really shouldn't be anything spiritual at the end of that because that should simply just humble us enough to go out and love other people well and humble us enough to say, okay, maybe God deserves my obedience a little bit, you know? <laughs> but there is a spiritual side, praise be to God. There is a spiritual side where the Holy Spirit enters into us, dwells within us, and sanctifies us over the course of our lifetime. And all of this is outlined in the book of Romans. So we need to begin to put away our, our cultural, philosophical, ideological differences to show the world, to show each other the fantastic beauty of the grace given to us through Jesus Christ. That more often than not, anyway, more often than we do, we need to put away our pride 
and be servants one to another. When we do that, I think Paul says, we begin to see the depth of the pain of being Christ-like, and we begin to see the depth of the beauty of it as well. And yes, this is precisely what the Corinthian church is struggling with on next week's episode. <laughs> hey, real quick before you go, if you've liked what we've been doing here, uh, no matter where you're listening from, think about reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It helps get a ton of new people in on this conversation. Thanks. Until then, this was Bible Unbound. We'll see you next time. Bye.